I'm Angela Kennecke, a veteran journalist with 30 years in television news and an investigative reporter. But for the purpose of this podcast, I'm just a mom trying to find my way after the loss of a child in the opioid epidemic. I am grieving out loud, using my platform on TV and on social media to try to stop the stigma of addiction and get more people into treatment so that no other family has to go through the devastation that I and my family have experienced at the loss of our 21-year-old, Emily. I'm joined today by Fiona Cullinan Farini. Fiona lost her son, Cameron, who was 27 years old. He died just a couple of months before my daughter, Emily, in 2018. He had struggled with addiction but seemed to be doing better until shortly before his death. But what is most remarkable about Fiona's story is how she and the other grieving mothers in her state banded together to change a law and to draw attention to the overdose problem. So thank you so much, Fiona, for being here today. No, thank you, Angela, for, for letting us have a voice. Let's start off by talking about Cameron. Cameron was 27 years old. Tell me a little bit about him and, and, and his childhood and um, your role in all that. Sure. So um, Cameron's mom and I were very, very dear friends, and I actually met Cameron. Uh, I was the first person other than his parents to see him the day he was born. I went down to the hospital. He had been born prematurely, and he was just under three pounds, and he just, there was, he and I had a bond from that moment on. I think seeing him fighting in that moment, we had a bond, um, and so His family had relocated to Pennsylvania. We always stayed in touch. And when Cameron was 13, his dad died very suddenly. And when Cameron was 16, his mom, my friend Andrea, died very suddenly. He was really an orphan then, right? I mean, there's nobody... He, you know, you know, he had he had blood relatives in Pennsylvania, but not he just felt very isolated and uh he came to us you know i i still remember the conversation we he started you know i went up there to the funeral and tried to figure out what he was going to do and he wanted to finish high school there and we said he was you know could come back and move in with us but at, you know at that point that they're trying to make it in their own environment and i remember clearly in 2007 he he would call us every day and in 2007 uh, I got a text and he said, hey, I got something to ask you. It's it's not really a big deal. It was very Cameron. He goes, well, no, maybe it is. So I called him and he said, hey, do you guys think you could be my parents? I'm really oh. afraid. Oh. I'm really afraid. And I didn't hesitate. I didn't discuss it with my husband. I said to him, of course. You know, he knew that I was never going to take the place of his mom. We were never going to take the place of the parents he lost, but we could be the new family. And I walked out and I said to my husband, um, we have another child. And that was it. That was in 2007. Wow. And from there, it was very, very difficult for Cameron. He had become addicted to oxycodone at age 14. At 14? How did 14. Why? How? He was given it for a knee injury. He was prescribed oh. it for a knee injury. And I think given his age, 
I think it rewired his brain. Yes, it was, it was sure. a beast that he fought and yeah. fought and fought. And there was, it really, you know, when I think about it, uh, I think about how, how long the battle went on and how bravely Cameron fought that battle. He was never dishonest with us ever. He would tell us when he relapsed, you know, as if you know anything about Pennsylvania, you know that the uh, opioid epidemic really, really spiked there. So you think about a young person who's already an oxycodone addict living in that environment and the plentitude of drugs around. So you know how this goes. They then turn to heroin when they can no longer afford. Right, because it's cheaper and easier, actually easier exactly. to get them the pills once they, once they started pulling the pills. So let me ask you this. He had, he had struggled with this, and I'm sure that had really impacted the entire family, his addiction struggle. Yes. Yes. But what's yes. so heartbreaking about Cameron's story is that he had gone into recovery and seemed to be doing really well for a period oh, of time. He did. He did. He um he had uh, been in Lancaster, then he had been in Florida. He would come to us, then, and then he moved back with us in 2017. And he was determined, determined to get healthy. I, you know, his therapists say that he was the most engaged patient they had ever seen. So he put himself back in college here in New Haven. He had a full-time job as a chef at a local restaurant. Uh, oh. He he never missed a day of work. He never called out. They adored him. Um, he was going to therapy two to three times a week. Never never missed a therapy appointment. Uh, he involved all of us in, in his therapy, which was another sign of how open and how loving Cameron was and how deep the trust was with our family and Cameron. Uh, he seemed to be doing great. Uh, you know, as a matter of fact, I had been in England um, three weeks before he died cause, because my mom had passed away, and he had texted me and said, I've bought sneakers. When you come back, we're going to start running. And um, when I came back, he said he was all excited, showed me his sneakers. He was very hopeful we were going to start running. His relapse, Angela, was so fast that there was no time to intercede. He, uh, we know now, looking back, that he probably started to struggle the week before. Um, but he wasn't using. He was just, I think he was fighting in his mind. Sure, sure. And, th and then he, he worked that weekend. And on the Saturday, he bought what he thought. We know he thought it was oxycodone because we know we knew him so well. We knew that oxycodone was, if he was going to relapse, that was his drug of choice. Sure. So we now know that he bought what he thought was oxycodone, uh, probably pharmaceutical grade, from somebody, we believe it to be somebody that he trusted. Uh, his circle was very small. The timeline's very tight. Uh, he probably bought it right outside of his job. Um, he came home. On the Saturday night, he was supposed to meet us after work, and he texted and said he was tired. And I said, all right, well, then if you're not coming, then we'll come home. And I came in. He was sitting in his room reading. I asked him if he wanted anything to eat, and he was reading a book. Um, and that was the, that was the last time uh, that I saw Cameron alive. He knew that we were going to be out on the Sunday, and we think he waited until the early hours of the morning 
He crushed up one of those pills and injected it. Probably in his mind, Angela, he thought he was just going to sleep. And then he was probably on the on the Monday going to own that he had relapsed because he would always own when he relapsed. Mm -hmm. So we believe he was probably going to say to his therapist, you know what, I've relapsed. Let's take care of this. Um, unfortunately, what Cameron had been sold was actually straight fentanyl. So not even another street drug laced with fentanyl, straight, straight fentanyl. He did not have a prayer. I had Narcan in the house. I had learned to use Narcan during this battle. Uh, The medical examiner told me if I had been next to him as he injected, I could not have saved him. It was... uh, he hadn't even fully injected. The syringe was still in his arm. But that's how potent the fentanyl was. That there was yeah. no the minute it hit his blood system, yeah. he didn't stand a chance. Even even if like the the coroner said, if you would have been right there. Yes, yes. And oh. then, you know, I don't know as a mom if I'm ever going to accept that. You know oh. how that is. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I in do. your I mind, do. you're always oh, if we'd checked on him in sooner, but. Right. But if realistically, only. If only. Yes, right. realistically, I know that uh, we could not have saved him. My daughter, it was Sundays he used to sleep. That was his routine. He used to kind of sleep in, and we had been out in the morning, so we didn't really think anything of it because he would get up and he would go back to bed on a Sunday. So we didn't really think anything when we came home late afternoon and his bedroom door was closed. And then my daughter went to wake him up for dinner, and she found him um mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Isabel found him um, on the floor, and uh, that that was it. I mean, they handled it as a crime scene. I think they must have realized... You're talking about the police, the local police in Connecticut? Mm -hmm. Yes, they handled it as a crime scene. I think, Angela, when they saw... They couldn't say it was fentanyl, obviously, that day, but I think probably when they saw it, uh, they must have recognized something that, and so they handled it as a, you know, they processed the house as a crime scene, mm-hmm. um, and that, you know, that they did what they needed to do. That was as a family. I mean, that was ho- just awful, awful. Oh, I, I think about that every single day. I specifically think as a mom about Cameron's body lying on his bedroom floor with police guard, but you. As a parent, your instinct is you want to be there with them. You want to be in the room with them. You're still trying to protect them, and you can't. And so I think about that trauma all the time, and I think about how many other families in this country are probably also reliving that exact trauma every single day. But this crisis tries to silence grieving parents. Why do you say that? Why do you say that, Fiona? Um, I say that because I know, having had a child who was struggling with addiction, I know the public perception. Not everybody, Angela, not everybody, but some people do tend to make them responsible for the choice, say, oh, well, they were addicts. There's that shame, yes. and it's a public health crisis. But there is still that level of shame surrounding it that we have to we have to break through. I believe it's because people don't uh, uh, 
once you see this as the brain disease that it is. It is an acquired disease. I mean, you have to yes, make a is. choice to use. It's that an acquired. But in, in your son's case, and I know he was a son to you, in your son's case, he was prescribed this by a doctor at age right. 14. At age I mean, 14. his young developing brain. And that is just one of the outrageous things about your story. But I think what happened following um, Cameron's death is something yeah. we need to focus on, too. Because when you contacted me, you contacted me shortly, maybe within the fall of 2018, Yes, I believe. And that was shortly after I had gone public with Emily's story and was talking about it. And you told me, these police detectives are telling me they can't really do anything to go after the person who sold yes. the pill that was 100% fentanyl to your son and killed him. This is yes. drug-induced homicide, and the police are telling you we can't do anything. And what did I say to you? Oh, we were horrified. So I didn't, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know enough about it. So they processed the scene that day. So to me, we knew it was a very tight timeline. We knew it was somebody he trusted. We assumed that they would be following through on this. We assumed, and, and let me just say, let me go back a second. Law enforcement, New Haven law enforcement on the scene were fantastic that day. I mean, they did everything they were supposed to do. But now we think there's going to be an investigation. And in our minds, our biggest thing that we wanted was that person stopped. So right. that other people... Kill. Right. They couldn't kill anybody else, right? So they couldn't do it to anybody else. You're thinking, I couldn't save up my child. I got to save the others. So we're not really questioning what's going on. And then we realize nothing's happening. And we start trying to figure out why nothing's happening. So now besides grieving, we're also trying to do like, uh, police work or trying to figure things out. And finally, we met with the sergeant in charge of the case. And he explained to us that in Connecticut, fentanyl was not classified as a narcotic because it was an artificial uh, substance. And an, artificial, so, uh, an artificial opioid, basically. It's a yes. synthetic opioid. Exactly. Why wasn't it, do you know why it wasn't classified as that? It just wasn't. It just wasn't. And so he said to me, so even if we investigate and we question this person, if we arrest them, they're going to get right back out. They're going to get right back out because we don't have a law to hold them. So I remember in that moment looking at him with absolute horror, and I said to him, well, we have to do something. What do we do? And he said, the only thing I can tell you to do is I recommend you try to find other parents and go to Hartford, which is where our capital is, make a lot of noise, and try to get a law. Well, that was the beginning of April. Our legislative session here closes out in June. I was on the phone. I don't even think his car was out of our driveway. And I was on the phone trying to find other parents this had happened to. And I did find another mom whose son had died in 2018, also in New Haven, from a fentanyl overdose. And I found a dad whose son had died in Connecticut of fentanyl overdose. We had never met each other physically. We met each other because of this. Mm -hmm. And I got a hold of legislators. Uh, we spoke to the sergeant on the Saturday. I was on the phone to legislators on the Monday. I found out that one of our state representatives of Demis Clarities had penned a bill to try to get it reclassified. 
and it had died in the house. And so I got in touch with her office and said, can we get it back to the floor, please, this legislative session. Uh, it, she was great. Uh, Senator uh, Representative Candeloria was great. So I and the other two parents then began going to Hartford. My children would go to Hartford. My husband would go to Hartford. We would carry Cameron's picture, and we would meet with the representatives and the senators and say, this is why we're here, and this is why you need to pass this bill. There was some fear, Angela, about overcriminalization, and I would quickly explain that by saying, we're not asking for stricter penalties. We're asking for fentanyl to be treated the same as you would the sale of heroin or the sale of meth or the sale of cocaine. And that you could tell people thought about that for a minute. Uh, I so also, you you mobilized the troops. I mean, one of the things I did that on I've this seen... one, I did. I mean, the uh, the other parents have done a lot of different things sure. on, on this one. I was um, <laughs> my children joke, and they're not wrong. I was like a woman obsessed, Angela. From that conversation with the sergeant, I was on a mission to do whatever I could to get this bill to the floor. And I think. There are no greater powerful catalysts for change than mothers, grieving mothers who are also pissed. <laughs> so, you know, yes. we, we're, we're sad and we're angry. And you found other people who had lost, you know, one of the most important things in their lives to this and right. banded together. And that you are living proof because tell, you are living proof that, that that is a catalyst for change because tell me what happened next. I I, I believe so, you know. It was so late in the legislative session, and they got it to the floor. And it passed. It passed the House of Representatives, um, I want to say 143, 143 to zero, maybe. I mean, it passed. Wow. So it passed. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, it passed overwhelming. It passed the. It, they then had to get it to the Senate floor, and they warned us that it was an incredibly busy. Uh, legislative session. They were going to do what they could. I remember meeting with the chairman of the Judiciary Committee and he looked me in the eye and said, you know, I give you my word. I give you my word. I'm not going to block this. It's going to go to the floor. I think it's going to pass. And the other mother um, that was helping with this who started another great organization, Demand Zero, uh, because she lost her son to a fentanyl overdose, we were on the phone and we were watching the results come in and we were so scared that I actually turned it off because it had gotten to like 11 o'clock. It was the very last night of the legislative session and I thought, all right, they're not going to get it through. And then she texted me just before midnight and she said, hurry up, hurry up, watch. And it passed. It passed. Uh, I think there were only three senators who did not vote for it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so it went into effect in July, the governor. It did. In July. And has it been used? You know, so that's the next thing I'm obsessed with, Angela. I was just up at the, uh, I was just up at the Senate last week asking them, has it been used, and can we please reach out to local law enforcement throughout the state and find out if they are using this bill? Do they know about the law, and are right. they using it? So I don't actually have the answer to that yet. Uh, but I'm on it. I'm following okay. it all the way through. <laughs> I, I, I know you are. So tell me, tell me then, um, what happened with Cameron's case? Did this help with your son's case at all, 
or has that ever been has the person who provided him with the fentanyl pill ever been prosecuted? It did not help with Cameron's case at all. I am told that a case can always be reopened. Um, you know, I I think about it this way. I would really still like, obviously, I would like his case prosecuted. Um, I've gone as far to meet with the commissioner of the police in Connecticut. Um, however, I also think that the best thing we can do for Cameron, the absolute greatest way we can honor his memory and who he was and what he was about is to try to help others in his name. Yes. So, yes. Mm-hmm. I, I agree 100%. That is yeah. that is the best place to put your grief, not in um, revenge or any of these things, but exactly. in, in passing along so that other people have better lives and don't have to go through the exactly. same thing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. We're going so to what, be I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, what have you done? Uh, I'm sorry. We started a nonprofit, right? <laughs> we did. We just started a nonprofit. Um, what we're going to work on, it took me a while to figure out what would be the best avenue uh, to direct our energies on. We've decided, Angela, the best, the best thing to work on, especially because of Cameron's investigation, is stigma and make sure that law enforcement are educated now in this crisis to view the victims of overdoses as they would the victim of another crime uh, without always putting the full ownership on the victim for how they have died. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I just, and you're also working to get software to law enforcement so they can open up because so much of the information for these cases yes. is, is contained in people's phones. Exactly. Um, how, you know, who they contacted, how they got the drugs. And then also right. I thought what was really cool is Cameron was studying to be an addiction counselor. Is that correct? Yes. That is correct. That is correct. And, and wow. And so you have are, are also raising money um, for a scholarship for those people who want to study addiction. We are. My daughter Isabel, who uh, at you know we used to call them thing one and thing two. They were really funny mm-hmm. together, and they were studying at the same university. When Cameron died, she switched her entire major. She was also a college student. She switched her entire major to addiction studies because. Oh, so it's really impacted her life and her future. Yeah. I mean, it impacts all of our lives and all of our futures, right? Yeah. Everybody who, who loved, I know, the people that overdose in this country, for sure it does, in all kinds of different ways. Some are, right. you know, meaningful and some can be very destructive. You know, it's just right. so hard. But when you can take something like this, like your daughter is, and, and doing something positive to try to create change in the world, I just, my hat is off to your entire family. Yeah, thank you. And we know that Cameron would be so proud of her because he used to say to us all the time, I know I can help people like me. I know I can help people like me. Mm-hmm. So we think, all right, so now we're going to be the voice for Cameron to help others. Well, again, thank you for everything that you're doing. I am I am so sad that we had to meet in this way through this yes. bond that we share um, from losing our children. I think you have been through so much trauma as well, your entire family I know that that kind of death is so traumatic, and 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 you have been courageous and brave, and you've gotten things done to change the world. And so, thank you, and I'm I'm honored to know you, Angela. Thank you, because actually, I was feeling very isolated when I first read about your story, and I always wish. 
I always wish we didn't have to be this way. But then I'm always grateful that we have each other, you know? It's that sort of thing that it's it's the group of parents that you wish we had never had to meet. But I'm so grateful there are people like you out there and what you have done since you lost Emily is absolutely inspirational. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. We have a mutual admiration society here because yeah. I feel the same way about you. And I'm so uh-huh. glad that you reached out to me. And thank you for sharing your story for this podcast. I think people can really learn a lot from your story and all of the stories of people who talk on my podcast, but I'm very grateful. So thank you, Fiona. Thank you, Angela. I believe we can all learn from each other as we walk through life, and by sharing our suffering, we can lessen the suffering of others. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage. To read my blogs and join us in our mission, just go to Emily's Hope at paintingapathtorecovery.org. Also, please rate and review this podcast. Thank you.